This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. This week, I have on Jeff Zentner, who has his newest book, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee, coming out on February 26th. And he gets into what went into this book, how he came up with the idea, and we also talk about his first book, uh, The Serpent King, something that I really enjoyed, and we dig into both of these books, how he writes, and the books that influenced him. So listen in. So Jeff, what book hooked you? Yeah, I'm going to say A House of the Clock and Its Walls by John Belairs. Um, that that book did a, did a lot of things for me in terms of uh, really showing me the value of character, really showing me the value of having characters who you can really love and who you want to spend time with. I mean, the characters in that book are so great and you want to spend time with them and you care about them so deeply that the stakes of the story really matter, you know? So, uh, you, you just don't want to see anything bad happen to them. So I think that was the first book that really kind of hooked me on the power of, of storytelling and character. And those are the, 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 that's what I strive for in my writing is to develop the kind of characters that you care about so much that the stakes just kind of come organically out of that. Mm-hmm. Before we I comment on that, by chance, since they just made a movie out of it, did you happen to see that with, I guess it was Jack Black in it? I did see the movie and I loved it. It, it wasn't a well-reviewed movie, I don't right. think. I think people were generally kind of like, eh, whatever on it, like C plus, B minus kind of movie. I thought it was fantastic. I thought Jack Black was great. I thought Kate Blanchett was great. I thought the uh, kid they had playing Lewis was great. I, to me, it just worked. It succeeded on every level for me. I thought it was a nice uh, change of pace for Eli Roth from what mm, he's done true. in the past. Yeah. I, I, I just think it, I think it was a successful adaptation. For me, I enjoyed it. And so this book, uh, being one that uh, stands out so much for you, uh, what kind of uh kid were you growing up as far as uh just what you were into and and also your relationship to books so i was a very very obsessive kid with with these kind of obsessive uh, monomaniacal interests so i would get interested in something random and i would have to know everything about it so whether that be vikings or whales or you know, construction equipment or the ancient Romans or you, you name it, I would, I would become obsessed with it and I would have to know everything I could about it. And this was in the pre-internet days. So you couldn't just fall down a a Wikipedia hole. You had to go to the library and just start on one end of the bookshelf that held all the books on that particular subject and just start working your way through it and read until the end. And that's, uh, that's what I did. Um, but what that means is a lot of my formative reading years were spent in pure nonfiction. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to come around to be a, a, a reader of fiction. For a long time, I saw reading not as something you did, you know, kind of for pleasure or to become invested in the lives of characters or to engage with a story. It was something you did to inform yourself about something and eliminate questions about something or doubt about something so in that sense my 
whole sort of uh, fundamental approach to reading has changed since I was a little kid. And when do you think that change occurred for you? Like, when did you find books and, and find it as as entertaining uh, as something maybe to do kind of on your free time uh, to relax or however you would categorize it? So um, let me let me reframe it as as this. When maybe when did I turn to uh, turn to fiction and sure. view reading as as something that uh, that could do something for me other than sort of inform me or fill gaps in knowledge so in fourth grade my english teacher assigned us to read a book called child of the owl by lawrence yep and it's a book about a chinese american girl who comes to live with her uh, grandparents and she learns about her culture and it's a really uh it's a really beautiful book and it was very unlike anything i'd ever read before in terms of it being fiction, it was a you know a novel with chapters. It was mm-hmm. for that age, I think, fairly advanced thematically, and I just absolutely loved it. I connected with it, and it was that experience that taught me that I do like to empathize with other people when I'm reading. I do like to inhabit the lives of characters when I'm reading. Um, so that was kind of the formative experience that made me say, hey, you know what? You are a fiction reader. Good. And so, you know, you write YA. Uh, so when you were a young adult, kind of more in your teenage years, uh, did books play any type of role that you can remember? They did, but not YA books as such, because that category just simply didn't exist sure. when I was a young adult. So I, I came of age in the 90s. Um that marketing category of young adult just didn't exist. And I even worked at a bookstore and even in the children's section of a bookstore and that marketing category didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. So I loved Essie Hinton's books. I read, I read her books. Um, and then I read a lot of Stephen King and a lot of John Grisham when I was a teenager. Cool. And, but, uh, your first love, uh, for me in your bio was, was music. And so when did that kind of uh, your love for music, and you kind of really fell down, I'll say, that rabbit hole of uh, of that passion and following that. It really started to happen for me when I was probably about 16 or 17 years old. That's where I started to really, music started to really move me deeply at that point in my life. And I started to get hungry to make music. Like it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was, willing to be content to just sit back and consume anymore. I had to, I had to create it. I had to make it. So when I was 17 or so, 17, 18, uh, bought myself a guitar, kind of started teaching myself how to play in secret. My plan was I was going to emerge, you know, kind of fully formed. I wasn't mm-hmm. going to tell mm-hmm. anybody and none of my friends or anybody that I was learning how to play guitar. I was just going to pop up one day and I would know how to play guitar. So um, that's that's kind of how that went. And for a long time, actually, music supplanted books as my primary creative outlet, my primary go-to when I had kind of disposable time. Uh, it just became an obsession. And kind of continuing that thread of monomaniacal obsessions from when I was a kid the music kind of took up all the oxygen and 
kind of kept me from reading for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it was fun. It was kind of funny and counterintuitive because I was working at a bookstore at that point. And so I was around books every day, which also didn't help me to be a reader. I felt like whenever I was around books, I felt like I was at work. So working at a bookstore actually kind of made me read less in this sort of bizarre way. So music was my just primary obsessive focus for probably about 10 years until kind of my late 20s. And that's when I started to feel hungry to write songs. Up until that point, I was performing songs that other people had written, primarily old blues songs. I started out as a blues guitarist. And so in my late 20s, that's when I came back to books. That's when I came back to fiction because I understood that if I wanted to be a songwriter, I needed to study story again and I needed to study language and be filling my my mind with beautiful words, beautiful sentences, beautiful turns of phrase. And that kind of brought me back to reading. And what were some of those books? Do you remember that when you first came back uh, that really kind of grabbed you? Uh, and you really kind of in love, ended up loving. Yeah, so well, I really grabbed onto Cormac McCarthy at that mm-hmm. point, the way that he used language. He wrote books that were sort of a similar sensibility to the kind of music I was making at that point. I was making very kind of dark, heavy, southern gothic music. And, you know, if you're making that kind of music, what better inspiration to go to than like Child of God by Cormac McCarthy or, you know, Blood Meridian or um, Outer Dark or any of those early, very, very dark, gritty, lyrical novels of Cormac McCarthy that just kind of have these cadences, these Old Testament cadences and these, these, uh, these ways of using language, this kind of stark and terrible beauty that I was seeking to replicate in music. I was finding that in his book. So that period, I was reading a lot of Southern lit in general. I was reading, uh, you know, Cormac McCarthy, Charles Frazier, Flannery of Connor, like that kind of stuff. And that's what really hooked me back into reading. And so then when came the switch uh, from reading and writing songs to uh, writing books? So I got to be in my 30s, and it it started to become apparent to me. I can, the, the reality set in that people don't generally tend to make it big in music mm-hmm. as a debut artist after age 30. Mm-hmm. That's just not really a thing that happens. It's kind of like ice skating or gymnastics, <laughs> where if you haven't won your Olympic gold medals by the time you're 14, uh, you, you know, you sure. can probably kiss it goodbye. So... I'm in my early 30s, and it's dawning on me that my music career has seen its best days. Like, it's it's going to be on the downslope from here on out. And so I kind of make the decision to sort of phase out of music, kind of find my dignified exit from music. And the way I, I figure out to do that is to volunteer at a rock camp for teenagers. That becomes my connection to the world of music so i start volunteering at tennessee teen rock camp and at southern girls rock camp so i'm working around teenagers you know for the first time as an adult and it's just an absolutely magical experience working with this kid working with these kids i i just absolutely love them i think they're amazing 
And what I've what I've really fallen in love with is the way that young adults love the art that they love, the way that the art they love most moves them and it weaves itself into kind of the fabric of their being and it becomes a part of their identity in this really wonderful and magical way that art doesn't do for many adults. You kind of lose that as you become an adult, that ability to take art and integrate it into into who you are and, and to let it construct your identity. So that made me want to make art for young adults. But now I've got this dilemma, right? Because I'm too old to make music professionally. Mm-hmm. And I'm much, much too old to make the kind of music that gets marketed to young adults. Sure. Because the reality is they're they're selling 23 and 24 year olds to young adults mm-hmm. you know musically right. so that's it's just simply not going to happen so if i want to make art for young adults i have to find something else so you know i start looking around for what can i do to reach this audience i want to reach and this is at the the time that there's this burgeoning category of books called young adult books and it does not escape my notice that young adults read young adult books and young adult books get marketed to young adults. And it also doesn't escape my notice that there's not nearly as firm an expiration date on authors as there is musicians. So you can be a Toni Morrison and publishing your first book when you're 39. You know, you can be a Donna Tart and leaving 10 years between books the, the 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 scales of time are just different in publishing. So this was still something that I could do. I, I wasn't, I hadn't aged out of publishing. So we've got young adult books. I love books. I am not too old to publish one. Maybe this is my entree to making art for the people I most want to make art for, which is young adults. So, you know, it, it's like I, it's like I tell people, yeah, I'm a writer, but I picked my audience first and I picked the form that would allow me to reach that audience. I, I, I tell people this and it's not a lie. If it were juggling that would have allowed me to reach <laughs> young adults with art and to to create art that, that moved them and that was meaningful to them, then I'd be a juggler. That's what I would do. I wouldn't be a young adult writer. I just I, – I followed the audience and sure. – now I do have a love for writing. I absolutely do. And I have aspirations to write all sorts of things beyond young adult. But I'll never forget that that was my, that was my hmm. kind of initial intention. And so once you kind of had this realization, what did you go, where did you go from there? Was it like when you were 17 and you just went into your bedroom, thought you could be, you know, come out of the room then fully formed as as a writer or did you kind of have to then uh, work on your craft because it wasn't something that you had been training or working on up until that point really? Yeah. And no, I hadn't. I, I, I'd never had a creative writing class. I'd never tried to write anything longer than, you know, a two or three page short story or maybe a one page poem or songs. So I, so it, it was, it was good and bad that I started writing later in life in, in, in my thirties in my mid to to later thirties bad because you just don't have as much time Mm -hmm. at that point in your life to, to write. It gets difficult to write. You have a day job, which I had and still have. You have a family, you have responsibilities. You're just tired. I mean, you're just, you're, you get 
tired and it's hard to find the energy and it's really hard to find the energy to upend your creative life and rebuild from the ground up and and reinvent yourself. Um, So that was difficult. But the good part was, was that at that point I knew myself well enough and I had enough perspective on my own creative process and the way that I worked to understand that this was something I could do. If I attacked this and didn't hold anything back and just made a full-scale assault on the castle, then this was something I could do. This was something I could achieve. So um, I went out and I got some books about writing. I got Stephen King's On Writing. Uh, I got Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I got The Kick-Ass Writer by Chuck Wendig. You know, I got... um, uh, save the cat. I got all these these great books on how to write books, and I read them. And I started becoming a very active reader in the fiction that I was reading. I started really picking apart what worked for me on a sentence level, what worked for me on a plot level, what worked for me on a character level, and I started integrating that information. Um, and then I just wrote. A practice novel. I mean, it, I had every intention of trying to publish it, and I did try to get an agent with it, and I didn't get any bites. It was this sort of post-apocalyptic young adult book, and uh, at that time that I was trying to get an agent for it in 2012, 2013, we were riding the, the downslope of the dystopian mm-hmm. wave of the mid-2000s, and nobody in publishing wanted to touch anything young adult and remotely dystopian. So I wrote this whole novel and it kind of just went in a drawer. Am I glad I did that? Absolutely. Because that was kind of like, I call that my MFA. Mm-hmm. That was, that's where I learned how to write a novel. And that's where I learned, Oh, okay. If you don't build stakes into the story from the foundation, it's really hard to go back and add them in. Okay. Duly noted for my second book, you know, Oh, Um, you know, just all these things like, here's how you write a line of dialogue. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do, how you do that. So I had kind of a dry run with this first novel. And that's sort of how I learned how to write a novel to the extent that you can learn how to write a novel. Every time I go and sit down to start a new novel, I feel like I'm starting completely over again and I have zero experience, but, um, but I guess I learn a little bit each time. I don't know. Sure. So, so that's, so that's kind of how I attacked that. I wrote that, I wrote that first novel. It, it came out really quickly. And then when it became apparent that it wasn't going to sell, that's when I came up with the idea and started writing the serpent King, which would become my debut novel. And I want to tell you a story about the serpent King. Uh, from me that you probably heard a, a version of before, but uh, when I read The Serpent King, uh, actually it was the audio book, and I was driving into work when the the big event to, for so I don't spoil anything for listeners uh, yes. occurred, and <laughs> so I'm driving into work and I start sobbing, and and so to the point where I have to turn off the 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 uh, the tape or the it wasn't a tape it was my phone but turn off the uh, the volume and then just sit in the parking lot till I could pull myself together so I didn't look like a mess as I you know walked in among my coworkers uh, so was it- <laughs> well here's well let me let me give you the uh, the the other side of that story which was which was 
So I wrote The Serpent King and my first novel and my second novel and my third novel and my fourth novel that I'm working on now on my phone on the bus to and from work. That's my writing time is my commute to and from work. And I just tap away with my right thumb on my iPhone and draft in a Google document. And every night I come home and pull everything I drafted in the Google document out of the cloud and and dump it into a master document. So the day that I wrote the big event, uh, I was on the bus, I was riding home from work. And it was so I was becoming so emotional writing this scene, that I actually had to pull the cord to get off the bus and sit in a grocery store parking <laughs> lot, and just waited out for 20 minutes until the next bus came, because I really was just not in any sort of dignified way. So uh, I, I hope that makes you feel better that yes. I put myself through, yes. <laughs> through some punishment to write that scene as well. I have one more funny story about sure. that scene. So uh, a really good friend of mine is is Stephanie Perkins, the young adult mm-hmm. author who wrote Anna and the French Kiss and and uh, and 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 there's someone inside your house and and other wonderful young adult books. So she was the first real published author I ever knew and a good friend of mine. And, and she's been there as a big support for me and helped read my work and get given me pointers. And her husband, Jared, is also a fantastic reader. He's a really sophisticated reader, knows what's good and what what is not good in young adult. And so he's a good critical eye. So I've got his eyes on the serpent King in an early draft and I'd given him the manuscript and I'd kind of forgotten that I gave it to him. And one day I'm just sitting there waiting to get my hair cut and I get a text from Jared that just says F you. And I'm like, <laughs> what is, what is this man? What, you know, what just out of the blue? Cause I'd forgotten he was even reading it. And he goes, you know what you did. I'm reading your manuscript right now. And I go, oh, and that was the moment. That was the moment. If, if, if I could pinpoint any moment mm. where I thought I might just be able to do this, I might just be an author, that was the moment that I got that text message. And let me ask you, since we're talking about that book, what was that initial idea uh, for the Serpent King that kind of got you uh, writing that story and telling the story of those three characters? So I I wanted to rebound from my first kind of failed novel attempt quickly. Um, I wanted to get something I wanted to get something on paper quickly because you know I'd gone to the trouble to reinvent my creative life. I didn't want to be you know sixty years old when I published my first book. I was trying to get out of the gate as soon as I could. So what I did is I went back to my songwriting, my songwriting well and pulled out a couple of songs that I thought could be expanded out into novel form. A couple of songs where I hinted at a larger story. Mm-hmm. And one of these songs was called The Serpent King. And so I finally settled on two songs and I couldn't decide which one of them I wanted to expand out to novel length. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to decide because, hey, this novel's probably going to fail too. Nobody's going to want to read a book about misfit southern kids in a small town in Tennessee, you know, the son of a Pentecostal snake handling preacher. Like, this isn't, this isn't young adult fiction as I know it. It's just, this is the story that I have available to tell. Nobody's 
going to care or read that. So I'm just going to put both ideas into the same book. So The Serpent King is an amalgamation of the ideas from two different songs that I wrote uh, as a songwriter and then kind of figured out the connections between the two. Mm. Cool. So you're now on to your third book, uh, which comes out on February 26th. Uh, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. So let's start talking about that. And then what is this book about? This book is much more of a comedy than my first two books, which if you're familiar with my books, you might say, well, that's not hard to do. My second <laughs> book is about a teenager struggling with grief and guilt after an accident that killed his three best friends, which he thinks he may have caused. So the bar to writing a comedy was not terribly, terribly mm. high, but uh, it is a comedy. And it's about two girls who have their own uh, creature feature show on their local public access station in Jackson, Tennessee, where they show cheesy horror movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They dress up like vampires, kind of in an Elvira vibe. They read fan mail. They do puppet shows. They have dim-witted friends from school come and do dance parties on the show. They just generally uh, have a really great time doing it. One of the girls is using the show to try to springboard her television career. That's what she wants to do. She wants to be in television professionally. And she's not particularly invested in horror movies. This is just a way that she can jumpstart her TV career. Her best friend, though, is a huge horror movie fanatic, but she's not great at TV. So they kind of make a good combination. They've got a true horror aficionado and they've got a true TV personality, and so they kind of complement each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, and the book is about their struggle to take their show to the next level so that it can do for each of them what they want it to do for them. The girl who wants to go into TV wants the show to be able to be something that she can just ride out as a career, and that can be her television career. The girl who loves horror movies is using the show to try to reconnect with her father who abandoned her family when she was young and left behind this treasure trove of VHS horror movies that they now use for the show. So I kind of uh, – do. would you like me to talk about where I came up with the idea for that? Sure. That was actually going to be my next question, so please. Great. Excellent. So inspiration comes from all sorts of funny places and – Sometimes you can really pinpoint the exact moment that inspiration strikes. And in this case, I had come home, I think this would have been in February 2015 or 2016. One of the two. At any rate, it was a February, so it's it's coming right up here, the anniversary. And I came home on a Saturday night, and I flopped down on the couch, and I turned on my TV, and I just started flipping through channels. Now, why is that strange? It's strange because I, I subscribe to like eight different streaming services mm -hmm. and I have a two watch queue in each one of those streaming services that's a mile long. Okay, so I don't need to be channel surfing. Sure. I shouldn't be channel surfing. I should be working my way down through the stuff that, you know, I've said I need to watch this. But I just sit down and I start channel surfing and I get to the Nashville Public Access Art Station. So Nashville has a, where I live, has a public access station specifically devoted to the arts. So if you love public domain, 
performances of Shostakovich by the Moscow Symphony, uh, boy, are you in luck <laughs> because they will show those. Or if you like sort of uh, shoddily produced songwriter in the round shows where you can see local Nashville songwriters uh, singing their songs on a set with low production values, then that's, you know, that's the place to be. So there's this arts public access station. And on this Saturday night, I hit that station and they're showing this, what appears to be a grainy old horror movie. It, It feels like a horror movie just from the mood of it. There's this weird kind of theremin score that, you know that kind of Mm -hmm. spooky kind of deal and so i'm fascinated i'm like what is going on here and i watch for a while and it's this zombie movie called children shouldn't play with dead things and it's one of the first projects that the guy who directed a christmas story ever did which is kind of a funny little fact Hmm. so it's this zombie movie And there's a point in the zombie movie when it cuts as if to commercial, but it's public access, so it's not actually cutting to a commercial. It cuts to this show that is hosting this movie, and the show is called Midnight Mausoleum. And it's these two girls who are in – they look like they're in their 20s. They're kind of dressed like vampires. Their names are Marlena Midnight and Robin Graves, uh, and they are hosting this movie. They're horror hosts. And their show is is so goofy and sweet and silly and just very janky and public access. Like they have these cheap puppets and it's it is so fun to watch and it's so cozy and it just feels like I'm watching these two best friends having a sleepover and making a silly show on their phones during a sleepover. And it was just so much fun. And I, and I watched for about 20 minutes and I just instantly got this idea. Oh, and another fun detail about them is that they're from rural Iowa and their show is syndicated across wow. the United States on public access stations. So um, it so they weren't even local. They were uh, they're, they're from rural Iowa. And so I watched the show for about 20 minutes and I've got this real soft spot in my heart for kind of goofballs and misfits and people who do the best they can and just it's just not great like the best they can do is just maybe it's a public access show that just doesn't have great production values but is so sweet and and fun and you can feel the love in it and it made me want to write a story about two girls like these two girls and I came up with the names of my two girls. It would be Rain Ravenscroft and Delilah Darkwood. Uh, they would host a show called Midnight Matinee, hence the the title of the book, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. And, um, and that's where I kind of started to conceive the idea of it. And, I, and it worked, too, because I knew that I needed to switch things up for my third book. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to write kind of emotionally punishing books. They, they put you through the ringer. And I felt like it was time to just change things up a little bit and stretch my legs and take a risk and and write something lighter and and funnier. So um, I call Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee my Gilmore Girls book. I'm a huge fan of Gilmore Girls. I love the tone of the show. Uh, I love the world of the show. I love the the heightened, surreal kind of uh, mode of speech of the show. I just love everything about it. 
and I wanted to write a book in that sort of in that sort of vein. Hence, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. That's great. So I'm wondering, as a musician, what what part does music play in just the actual like job of putting uh, words onto a document? I know that you type on your phone. Do you listen to music then? Do you listen to music? when you are editing or, you know, at the end of the day when you're actually working in front of a computer screen or, you know, and what are you listening to if you do? Like, is there any role that music plays in your creation of stories? Yeah, so I, I listen to, um, when I'm writing or editing, I listen to primarily instrumental music and I listen to really intensely beautiful music. So I like to listen to a lot of... uh I guess you would call it post-rock, kind of like explosions in the sky. So mm-hmm. think uh, Friday Night Lights, the, mm-hmm. the theme music to Friday Night Lights, that sort of music. Um, so I listen to a few groups. I listen to a band from Nashville called Hammock, which sounds very tropical from their name, but actually they're not. They're instrumental, and they do this kind of lush, gorgeous, layered, ambient music. I listen to a band called Slow Meadow, I've started listening to this composer named Federico or Federico Albanese, and they just kind of transport me. They put me in a mood. Um, When I'm not directly writing or editing, I will listen to music with lyrics, and I'll listen to Beach House and Churches and Chelsea Wolfe and this other music that's kind of dark and romantic and sweeping and layered and um, it's it's just very moody. It just takes me to the place that I need to be to write. It opens up kind of that portal in my mind and and the uh, the words can slip out. Now I can I can take a step back and I can tell you the role that making music played sure. in my process as a writer. What making music taught me was that I have a an artistic voice. It taught me that I have a way of telling stories. I have a type of story that I tell. Um, and I think there's something really to be said for that. I was a huge True Detective fan, and I loved season one of True Detective. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I hated season two of True Detective, and now I love season three of true detective and in many respects season three of true detective is a redux of, of season one so many of the elements that were present in season one that i loved nick pizzolato the show's creator has taken and put in season three and it shows i think an acknowledgement on his part that there is a kind of story he tells and there's a kind of character he excels at writing and as a storyteller, you don't need to tell all the stories. You can appreciate all or many or most of the stories, but you don't have to tell all the stories. Mm-hmm. And so as a musician, I learned that I don't tell all the stories. There are many, 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 many other musical stories that I can enjoy and do enjoy that are for other people to tell. So it taught me that there's a kind of story that I tell. It taught me that I have a voice. It taught me that I have a process um, and that when the well seems dry, which it often did in music, there will always be another song. And so that's something that, that gets me through the, the, through the dry spells of writing is remembering 
that time as a musician that there was always another song. Just when I thought I was dead creatively, just when I thought the well was dry, there'd be another song. So that's what that's what making music taught me. And then on a more granular level, it taught me to use language in an economical and beautiful way. It taught me to write musical sentences that have rhythm and cadence and melody and and, and all of that good stuff. And so I'm wondering, because you said, you know, you purposely made uh, Rain in the Lies Midnight Matinee to be lighter, uh, to be more more girl, girlish, as opposed to, you know, Servant King and Goodbye Days, were you, did you go into that with that goal, but yet being nervous, like, uh, that if you were going to be able to do that and really get across uh, the humor and lightheartedness, given kind of how you ended up composing the other two books? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it never fails that that, that when I tweet some joke that I think is an A plus joke, <laughs> it'll get like six likes. And when I tweet a joke that I think is like a B plus joke, like 250 likes. So like, it's, it's scary to me to know that the things that are the funniest to me are often the things that people connect with the least sure. and people find the least funny. So that that was frightening to me and I had to kind of keep that in mind and sort of edit myself a lot when I was writing. I don't know if I was successful. I, I think based on the reactions I've gotten so far, I think I was mostly successful. I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. Uh, I don't regret anything. But yes, it was scary for that reason. That's great. Well, a few questions as we wind down here. The first one being, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? I am going to say The English Patient. Okay. I absolutely love the movie. I love the book. I think second place would be Legends of the Fall, although I, I don't think Legends of the Fall is a great movie, but that doesn't stop me from loving it. I think in many ways it's a terrible movie, but I do love it, and, and I've seen it probably five or six times. And I absolutely love the Jim Harrison novella that it's based mm -hmm. on. Um, yeah, so those are probably my two biggies. Good. The next one then is, is there a book or a series that you're willing to admit that you either never read or weren't able to finish? I have I loved the first Hunger Games, but mm -hmm. I've never read the other two. And there's no good reason for that whatsoever. Um other than just the first one I found so satisfying mm. and so complete. And nobody's ever told me that the second two are sure. better than the first one. And I just kind of said, you know what? I'm just going to let sleeping dogs lie here and I'm just going to be happy with the first one. So um, I've never read that. I've never read the second and third Hunger Games. I read about 27 pages of the first Twilight book and it was just not for me. It was just not. I was reading it. I was like, this is not, this book is not written for me. It's written for many, 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 many people. And many, many people have, have loved it. And that's great. It's just not for me. Sure. So I never, uh, I never finished that. Very well. And then finally, what is the last great book that you've read? I'm going to plug a book that comes out in June of 2019 called On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vong. And Ocean is uh, – he's a poet, 
and he really made a splash with his his poetry volume Night Sky with Exit Wounds. Absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just stunningly beautiful, sensual poems, poems about living and dying and loving. And and he's just got such a keen eye for human nature and such a keen observational uh, mind. And so this novel of his, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, is told from the perspective of a young Vietnamese man who's writing a letter to his illiterate mother. And he's kind of narrating his life in this letter and it is so tremendously moving it is so beautiful um i'm sorry that you're y'all are going to have to wait for the most part uh unless you have a connection to get an advanced copy um june 2019 on earth were briefly gorgeous i would really be shocked if it doesn't just sweep the awards i mean uh if it were up to me I'd give it the Man Booker Prize tomorrow. I'd give it the Pulitzer Prize tomorrow. I'd give it the National Book Award tomorrow. I'd give it the Penn Faulkner Award tomorrow. You name it, I take it. Just go. Just it. It's yours. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. So that is that is my big recommendation. And my other big recommendation is um, as a body of work. This last year, I discovered Mohsen Hamid, who wrote Exit West. He wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist. He wrote How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, Moth Smoke. He is an absolutely sublime writer. Every one of his books is an absolute five-star read for me, and I'm so glad that I discovered him as well this last year. That's great. Well, Jeff, uh, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee comes out on February 26th. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me to talk about the book, and I wish you and this book all the best. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure and honor to speak with you. And this wraps up another episode of What Book Hooked You. I want to thank Jeff Zettner for joining me. His latest, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee, is out on February 26th. I hope you'll check it out. If you wanted to check out any of the other books or movies that we talked about during this discussion, you can check it out in the show notes. I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading.